Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Manik Suri to the show. Manik Suri is the founder and CEO of technology company Therma. Before founding Therma, Manik co-founded the Governance Lab, an innovation center at NYU that developed technology solutions to improve government. He is a former affiliate of Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society and has held positions at global investment firm D.E. Shaw & Company and the White House National Economic Council. Manik, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Raj. It's a pleasure to be here. Manik, I'm so happy to have you on. I'm going to start with somewhere, before we get to Therma, I'm going to start with somewhere that might sound strange, but I think it kind of gives some insight into your background. Can you tell me about your involvement with the Truman National Security Project? Definitely, definitely. It's been a uh, a long-term relationship. I got to learn about Truman um, after I was uh, finishing my undergraduate degree in political science and international relations. It was an organization started by uh, a woman, Rachel Kleinfeld, and uh, she was a democracy scholar and political theorist who wanted to bring together like-minded uh, policy-oriented and action-oriented uh, thought leaders, academics, um, and, and folks across sectors, public and, and private. And I first heard about it from friends of mine who were older than me in college who were joining, uh, Ganesh Sitharaman and uh, a couple of other uh, classmates of mine who were a little older. In also, uh, around that time, I did a master's in IR at Cambridge and realized um, that I wanted to be around others who were interested in the intersection of policy, politics, and, and, and progressive action. And that's why I joined. So I uh, became a Truman Security Fellow, I guess, back in 2009. Um, and then I went to law school at Harvard and got to be more active, active in the group and hosted the Boston chapter at various points at Harvard Law. Um, since moving to San Francisco and starting a tech startup, I've been less involved, though occasionally joining the Truman Energy and Truman uh, uh, Climate Groups. Uh, but it's awesome to see how the program has grown I think I first heard about it the year after they launched. It was a couple of people. No one had heard of it now. There's, I think, thousands of alums um, working at the highest levels of the public and private sector. So yeah, great community and and a number of friends uh, I've made through the programs. So someone hearing the name Truman might get the impression that it's political leaning. Can you give some tactical examples of what the group does? Sure. Uh, well, it, you know, technically speaking, I think Truman is set up as a nonprofit. And so there's a, a kind of a, a fairly, uh, you know, there's a line between what is or isn't uh, permissible uh, in terms of political action and political activity sanctioned under the nonprofit itself. Uh, many of the members are uh, politically active. 
Uh, Truman has a, a, a number of programs. Some are oriented around policy. Others are oriented around politics. Uh, and others are oriented around media. So there are Truman uh, scholars and Truman fellows that work in government, uh, in both Democratic and Republican administrations, um, though I think the membership probably skews towards uh, the Democratic side of the aisle um, substantially. There are folks working in politics. Uh, many, many Truman alums have run for office at the local, state, um, and even uh, national level. Uh, and then there's a number of folks working in media and around um, activism. So it, the membership itself has a lot of political um, activism and, and, and activity around its, um, you know, the, the kinds of careers that people pursue. The organization itself is technically, as far as I recall, I mean, I'm not part of the leadership of the group, but it was set up as a nonprofit. And I think as a result, you know, nonprofit uh, regulations require a certain, um, you know, uh, a line drawn between political activity and, and, and educational and and, and policy-oriented work. Well, I had never heard of the Truman National Security Project until I did some research on your background. And I'm looking at the five values. I'm extremely drawn to them. Are there any one of the five, and I don't mean to put you on a spot, but you know, human rights, community, government supporting social justice, tolerance, and then enlightenment, rationality. Are there any one of these values that particularly drew you to the organization? Well, I, I was drawn by all of the values, frankly. I mean, I joined it uh, fairly early on, uh, you know, in, in, and, you know, was first uh, excited by the, uh, the fact that American, uh, you know, that, that American foreign policy and national security could go hand in hand with humanism and a commitment to human rights and putting people first. You know, I think that alignment and that idea that you know you didn't have to sacrifice one for sake of the other—that's what really drew me to the organization. Uh, that you could you could pursue both. And uh, as someone who you know grew up, um, you know, very much uh, inspired by the idea of America and inspired by the possibility of um, you know the American dream and the American uh, promise becoming a reality. That's something my parents really believed in as immigrants coming here from India. Um, that was something that I wanted to see, uh, you know, and, and still want to see uh, instantiated in the real world. It's why I studied political science and international relations uh, at Harvard undergrad. It's why I ended up working briefly in government in the Obama White House, uh, doing economic policy as a junior guy in the team. And it's really, um, you know, at the heart of, I think, what Truman stood for and stands for. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say all the values resonated um, for different reasons. but but. It was a an unusual time for a democratic or left leaning organization to embrace national security and foreign policy. This is back in the two thousands. That that was you know, you know something that, that that really stood you know stood out for me. And I know we could talk about this for an hour, and I promise I'll get to Thermo here in a sure. moment. But one last one last question regarding you know I'm a fan, if you would, a bystander of political science. What are your thoughts right now about? where we are as a country and foreign relations. And I know it could go on forever, but I'm just curious. Well, I think we're living through a very uh, uncertain time in the world. Uh, growing up in the 90s, especially, uh, you know, many people talked about a unipolar world, uh, you know, the American century, a postmodern uh, 
era, I think as Francis Fukuyama famously put it in 91. He did. And I think what we've seen in the last 20 years, 9-11 was my first day of class, by the way, at uh, Harvard Undergrad. My first day of college was 9-11. So um, it's part of the reason I became an IR major. Um, I think what we've seen is the world is a lot more uncertain and there's a lot more uh, volatility, both geopolitically uh, and economically, and now, you know, climate-wise in terms of sustainability. So the challenges we face are in many ways greater and graver than they've ever been. Uh, the possibility of existential risk from nuclear weapons and from climate change and from bioweapons um, and pandemics is, you know, looming and, and greater than ever before. And so I think American foreign policy and American policy has you know, at times in the past few years, um, struggled to keep up and and to find its footing in a in a world where it's clear that we are not, you know, uh, going to be the sole superpower. This is no longer an American century. I think everyone is well aware that there are other uh, actors, other nation states, other civilizations, uh, other communities out there that also want to and and ought to have a seat at the table. So we're trying to I think figure out a way to navigate that as a nation. And sometimes that looks like seesawing between unilateral action or um, unilateral inaction, you know, and, and, and that's, I think, been challenging for both the Biden-Harris administration and also for, for many people who care about the American dream and about America being, a, you know, an exemplar nation for others. But all that said, I think we are starting to turn things around. For example, the recent uh, passage of uh, historic climate legislation, very recent, I think is an example of, you know, America doing what, you know, it can do, which is put the largest economy and the most dynamic economy um, in service of the future. That's what this uh, legislation represents. And we're actually putting our money where our mouth is. That's going to help improve and increase our credibility with nations abroad and partners abroad. Uh, that's the kind of action that we need to take at home if we want to be taken seriously and and lead by example overseas. Um, and there are many examples of us uh, taking actions at home that that reflect well abroad. Uh, I'm glad to see this administration doing that in a way that I think the last administration uh, didn't and, and and set us back, you know, in in many regards. But uh, not to get too political and uh, and far far afield. Just a few unfiltered thoughts there. I appreciate your views. And since you brought up climate and sustainability, can you give us an overview of Therma and your role at the organization? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, so uh, I founded and, and run Therma, which is a climate technology uh, startup based in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Um, we build technology to reduce waste and emissions across the cooling sector, specifically uh, the refrigeration supply chain. Cooling is a big part of the human uh, advancement and, and, and modernity. There's a need for cooling and, and, and cold chain to provide uh, some of the essentials of modern life, including uh, food, you know, fruits, vegetables, proteins, dairy, uh, as well as uh, pharmaceuticals, drugs, plasma, uh, many vaccines, um, and, and data. Uh, data centers are essentially stored uh, large cold storage facilities. So refrigeration powers and enables food, pharma, and data to be provided to billions around the world. But ironically, 
uh, it's a huge source of warming. Um, there's waste across the cold chain in the form of refrigerants, the chemicals that go into cooling, leaking into the atmosphere, they're ultra warming. Uh, the uh, spoilage and waste of product because of cooling failures and cooling um, inefficiencies uh, is a big source of um, emissions and the energy consumption of these assets is also massive. We're trying to reduce the footprint, uh, the emissions footprint of cooling by making cooling more efficient using IoT sensors, uh, analytics, and data science. Um, so that's, that's Therma. Uh, we describe ourselves as a clean cooling platform. Uh, and uh, it's one part of, I think, a much bigger, uh, you know, opportunity set, which is around climate innovation and climate technologies, solutions that can help in the battle against warming. And, uh, you know, excited to be part of that in a small way. So do you actually provide and install sensors, let's say, along the cold supply chain? Or how does it work? We do. We do. Um, we Our solution includes sensors, you know, physical uh, devices that are the size of a half a deck of cards, so a couple of inches by a couple of inches. Um, these are battery powered and 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 long range and long lasting, so they can send signal through dense insulation through the inside of refrigeration boxes, refrigeration warehouses, um, walk-in freezers, um, and they can last five to seven years uh, in terms of battery life. These are drop-in-place sensors, so literally do-it-yourself. Uh, there's no technician required. Um, we've designed the product to be very user-friendly and, and consumer-grade, as we say. So you can install the, the solution in less than 15 minutes. We work with companies across the supply chain from production to consumption. Most of our customers are in the food industry, so farm-to-fork. Uh, we've got over 1,000 customers. We've got you know over 10,000 sensors deployed. Um, in the last two years, and um, you know that could be in, in in agricultural warehouses, distribution centers, breweries, um, cafeterias in schools, universities, uh, hospitals, hotels, prisons, um, many many restaurants, cafes, bars. Um, so really, um, you know, runs the gamut from uh, you know from farm to fork. Uh, and we've signed up you know operators of, of of large brands like McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Domino's, Taco Bell. Marriott, Wyndham, Hilton. So it's exciting to see. It's early. We're a little over two years into the journey, but there's a lot of interest and need uh, for technologies like this that solve kind of obvious problems. Now, what kind of data do you collect and then share with your customers? Sure. The sensors collect uh, temperature and humidity data continuously. We surface that through uh, mobile and web applications that can show you trends or excursions or outliers. Uh, as a customer, most of our um, end users are interested in uh, preventing problems or catching problems early. So they often think of it like an alarm or um, insurance. They're basically catching problems with their refrigeration equipment or assets uh, in ways that would damage or spoil inventory or cause equipment failure. And so we're typically generating warnings or alerts when things are going to go bad or when things are, are, are running uh, off of standard or looking like they might break. Or fail. Uh, the idea is to help reduce um, equipment replacement costs, uh, reduce food spoilage and food waste, uh, especially during off hours, nights, and weekends, or uh, to catch issues that might occur because of grid failure or because of uh, human error, which happens fairly often. People, you know, unplugging equipment to clean it, forgetting to plug it back in, leading to tens of thousands of inventory loss. 
So that's kind of the the uh, general type of uh, use case. You know, we're, we're, we're an alarm or insurance for perishables that are high value across the supply chain. We've also built a second product recently that we're starting to commercialize. Uh, and happy to talk more about that. It's, it's built on top of our sensors. It's a way of turning refrigeration on and off dynamically and enabling us to start thinking of it like a battery. And that's kind of the future of the business and kind of where we're headed, Raj. So when I was doing research for the conversation, I came across an interview where you mentioned that I'm very, very interested in that. So if you could dig deeper into that concept, I'd really appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Well, when we started Therma in early 2020, um, the idea was to start monitoring refrigeration. Um, if you can't, uh, as the saying goes, you can't manage what you can't measure. So the first goal was to start getting real-time accurate data uh, out of these assets. Historically, it was very hard to get real-time visibility into refrigeration. The reason being uh, wireless sensors generally don't work inside refrigeration. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, which is what most wireless sensors use, can't get signal reliably through the side of the fridge of the freezer. The iron or steel acts like a Faraday cage. It blocks most electromagnetic radiation from getting out. We were able to solve for that by using a new type of connectivity that relies on long-range radio. By using long-range radio, we could push signal reliably through the inside of refrigeration out wirelessly and continuously. And that's what allowed Therma to start giving real-time visibility on temp and humidity. Um, once you can get that data into the cloud, and that's something refrigeration has not really had for 100 plus years. None of these assets are connected to the cloud today. So once you can see what's going on in the cloud and remotely, it opens up the possibility of dynamically managing that asset. For example, it turns out that refrigeration is being used you know, differentially at various points in the day or the year. There are times when the fridges and freezers are empty or times when uh, no one is there. For example, we work with hundreds of schools. K through 12 across the U.S. Um, schools are closed, <laughs> as many people know, in the summer months uh, and, and winter holidays. Well, you know, assets like refrigeration aren't always turned off or turned down during the off months. So those are examples of um, you know the, the fact that refrigeration is run statically and run dumb doesn't mean it has to be. Similarly, energy prices vary week to week and day to day, but no one turns refrigeration up and down. Uh, or on and off when energy prices go up or go down. Everyone just runs it constantly. And that's how it's been for 100 years. You plug it in the wall, you set the set point, and you let it go until it breaks or it fails. Well, a year ago, we started working on a solution where we could actually turn refrigeration off or turn it up and down using a combination of smart plugs and smart thermostats. So we can actually cut the power or turn the thermostat up and down remotely. And importantly, Raj, this idea, this ability to turn refrigeration on and off dynamically, one of the reasons we thought we could do it well and people would actually respond well is because we offer 24-7 monitoring. Without our sensor product, what we learned early on was that no one wants to turn refrigeration off or turn it, turn it too warm and run the risk of spoiling product or having a compliance issue. But with real-time monitoring, it opens up the possibility of actually turning the asset up and down dynamically. And so this is where we now start connecting this to, to this concept to the battery idea. Refrigeration, if you think about the fact that there's product inside, that product stores energy in the form of cold mass, you know, whether that's pork or sushi or strawberries or patties, whatever's frozen or, or, or kept in the fridge, that's essentially a store of energy. It turns out that you can actually tap that store of energy. You can tap that battery. 
by allowing the temperature to warm up slightly for small bursts of time. One of our customers actually did this and turned power off in a massive cold storage warehouse for three days in 2021 when energy prices went up in, in a certain market. And they were actually able to do this uh, uh, without spoiling product because they were able to rely on the energy uh, store inside the mass. Everyone who's ever had a power outage or left the drawer of the fridge or freezer open knows that if you touch stuff, you know it's, it's still cold for a certain while. It stays cold for, for, for some time before warming up. So we were able to take advantage of this property, the fact that refrigeration is run like a fully charged battery, to temporarily tap it for short bursts of time. And by warming it for a small burst of time for small degrees, we can actually create significant energy savings by timing those warm-ups or, 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 or uh, load management to when the utility needs the power or when energy prices spike. And so that's how we're starting to tap these refrigeration assets as distributed batteries. Of course, all of this is relying on our sensors to provide real-time visibility into the temp and ensure we never get close to uh, food safety or quality limits. Does that make sense? It sounds like a microgrid situation, and it makes absolute sense. I've been thinking about it, like I said, since I heard about it. Um, I'm thinking about grocery stores, uh, cold warehouses, etc. I'm very familiar with the IoT world. Would your sensor, you mentioned the smart plug, so your sensor would actually speak to the smart plug. Is that how you do exactly. it? Exactly. So our sensors and the controls layer uh, interop with each other. They can essentially uh, provide real-time condition monitoring. And if things start to warm up or get too close to a threshold that we've set, we can turn on or cool or extra cool the, the fridge or freezer back down. So yes, the, the controls layer and the monitoring layer interact with each other in this expanded product, which we've just started how? Uh, commercially. So- Let's say, for example, I'm going to just going to use a word. Let's say Maytag, for example, has a refrigeration unit, and your sensor is able to adjust the temperature as needed based on demand, etc. What are the the warranty on the? So Maytag would guarantee their device works for X amount of time, you know. But as this behavior takes place, this rising and lowering of temperature and produce in the facility, are there any implications for the warranties? I think there could be, you know, it's early with our commercialization. So uh, we're, we're working through a number of questions around the OEM, uh, original equipment manufacturer uh, guidelines and, and how they uh, see their uh, equipment being used. We're not the first to turn refrigeration uh, on and off or up and down dynamically. There are folks doing it in other environments. For example, in the residential market, uh, we have friends at a a startup called OhmConnect, uh, OHM. Uh, like mm -hmm. I'm familiar with it. OhmConnect is using smart plugs to control refrigeration in 200,000 households across California. Um, and you know we have mutual investors and, and, and friends uh, love what they're doing. They do it with washer dryers, dishwashers, and other home appliances as well. Um, smart plugs have been around for a decade plus. So the smart plug technology is not novel. It's the ability to turn things up and down while monitoring them that we think uh, makes this exciting for commercial uh, refrigeration uh, owner operators. What you might allow you know, in your own house as an individual is much harder to convince a Marriott or a McDonald's to do um, without reliability, without real-time visibility into the temp uh, because of the safety and quality implications. And that's where we think we have a unique um, advantage. Uh, from an equipment performance and equipment uh, uh, warranty standpoint, our view and having talked to and worked with um, 
a number of uh, refrigeration technicians and refrigeration uh, experts is that the equipment is actually made to withstand a certain number of turn-on, turn-off events uh, at baseline. We're not turning things on and off that often. I think this is important to mention, Raj. We're not turning things up and down every minute or every hour. We're doing this a couple of times a month um, and maybe at most a couple of times a week. Um, so it's not very uh, frequent. The frequency of interaction is, is not uh, continuous. Uh, and we're doing it at times that are high impact because they are around the time that the location is using peak power or the time when the utility has a uh, supply shortfall and needs excess capacity. So as long as we time these events to uh, peaks or to utility demand response programs, we can generate huge savings for the customer. And so it's important just to mention, you know, I think sometimes people assume we must be turning things up and down constantly. Um, it's actually fairly infrequent. Uh, one of our early investors um, has a, a large family refrigeration and HVAC business in the Middle East. And something that she said was, you know, you should talk to refrigeration technicians in the developing world where energy fails constantly, you know, like every week. <laughs> and I was reminded of my grandparents' house in Delhi, in India, where, you know, electricity used to go out like literally every day. So we called up a few refrigeration technicians abroad in, um, you know, developing economies where electricity is a lot less reliable. And they essentially confirmed that the manufacturers have designed equipment for the last 30 plus years to withstand a certain number of um, you know, power outages, which is essentially what we do using smart plugs. I think it's really interesting. What is your business model? Yeah, well, uh, we are uh, trying to build this technology and scale it in a way that makes it highly scalable and accessible. Um, in, in, in order to advance and, and achieve what we think is broad scale adoption, we've chosen to pursue a purely subscription-based model to date. So um, though we offer hardware, though our solution includes sensors, and now it's starting to include smart plugs, um, we don't charge for hardware. There's no um, uh, capital expenditure. There's no hardware fees. Uh, we don't charge for implementation or installation. Um, all we charge is subscription on our um, software layers, whether that's the mobile or web application or analytics. Um, and if you're purchasing and, and, and looking for energy optimization, again, that's on a subscription-based model. So it's a SaaS, you know, software subscription uh, business, um, even though there is a hardware component. I think uh, in, in venture capital land, people call it hardware-enabled hardware SaaS. That's kind of the category we're in. Um, but part of that was intentional because what we felt was that charging for hardware upfront made solutions like this very expensive for low margin, uh, you know, limited cash on hand operators, which is what most of our customers are. These are folks that do four to nine percent margin a year, uh, and they don't have a lot of cash, you know, on their balance sheets. So purchasing expensive hardware upfront makes it really hard for them to adopt energy efficiency or food waste-oriented uh, solutions. Um, and we were trying to make solutions like this widely available. Well, and some of the names you mentioned earlier, like a McDonald's, for example, it takes a lot of commitment for them to try a new product. You'd have to be providing them with at least a view into significant savings over time for them to even be interested. Absolutely. There's definitely, I think, a desire you know, on our part to make this a frictionless adoption, to basically eliminate some of those concerns or barriers to, to testing or adopting. Uh, and, and 
allowing people to to see ROI in the real world without having to convince them before they would consider an expensive you know capital expenditure. That's part of I think what we see as the advantage of being venture backed and being focused on scale. We can afford to um, take that risk off of the customer and say, look, we're going to make this really easy for you to adopt. No upfront expenses or investments, just a straight subscription fee. You'll see the ROI in terms of the waste prevented equipment failures and energy savings in in your locations. And so, yeah, we've been fairly, um, I think, aggressive about that and, and intentionally so because of the climate implications and the desire to achieve scale. Um, and happy to say that we grew rapidly in 20 and 21, despite the COVID-19 pandemic, two of the hardest years for restaurants and hospitality. And we still grew 3x year over year in both of those. Well, I was going to ask, you've been around, you said two years now. What are some of the biggest challenges you encountered in the last two years? <laughs> How long do we have? Um, you know, it's a it's a very interesting time to be running an organization, or really it's just a a very tumultuous time in the world for anybody and everybody. Um, we we launched Therma uh, in at the end of 2019, kind of December of 2019. We put our first couple of sensors in the world. We were raising a round of capital in early 2020 on the yeah. Uh, we had a term sheet in February of 2020 uh, ready to go, and uh, three weeks later, the first week of March, um, you know, the world started to shut down, uh, and that term sheet went away. And I have a lot of friends who are investors. I think half my friends at this point are investors. Um, you know, the other half are in government <laughs> or entrepreneurs. Um, and suddenly no one was returning my calls. <laughs> and we had a new product. We were selling it to restaurants and hospitality operators. And the world would literally had shut down in terms of uh, indefinite you know, closures because of this new pandemic that was. So we almost ran out of money. Uh, we were down to about three weeks of runway in, in March. Uh, that was painful and challenging. And um, I think we were able to, you know, pull together uh, a small round uh, in early April. Um, that that took some effort, and I had actually written a letter to our team and our shareholders. I was getting ready, you know, for the you know the final meeting, so to speak, to to share the news. Um, and we were able to pull pull together some capital and and stay alive. And then we grew, you know. Then in the summer of twenty and fall of twenty, we grew, and I think things got more exciting both because we realized that the, the product was solving a problem that was very measurable, reducing equipment failure and, and food waste and inventory loss. And so we started seeing people, you know, especially in the COVID-19 um, tight operating conditions, say, hey, we want to save every dollar we can. Half our locations are not being staffed or half of the operating hours are being cut. We don't know what's going on with our inventory. We need real-time visibility. So Therma actually got a lot of, um, I think, tailwind from the from some of the challenges of the pandemic, you know, once we got over the fact that we almost ran out of money, um, the um, you know, so beyond that kind of early um, you know existential uh, question, I think building a company in the midst of a pandemic is 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 hard. You know, fostering community, um, creating culture uh, is never easy, even in in normal operating conditions. Prior to COVID, um, we had an office in. San Francisco, where we were going in, you know, several days a week. Um, and, you know, since uh, the pandemic, we tried opening the office, you know, three times at various points, you know, once in uh, late 20 or mid 21, uh, before, you know, some, somewhere, I think, between Delta and Omicron, 
once in fall of 21 before Omicron, once in early 22 before new public health guidelines. We've, you know, we've now ended up um, building a team, you know, largely distributed. So, you know, 70 plus people, you know, about 15 or 18 are in the Bay Area. And so that means we're, um, we're trying to build community and, and, and create culture across folks that have never met each other or rarely met each other, which is hard. Um, and so that's definitely a challenge is how do you get alignment and get people excited? Uh, but I think most of the challenges have been, um, you know, really around how do we, um, how do we do more faster? You know, I think um, I, I got into tech to build tech for good 10 years ago. Uh, I left government uh, to, to move into building tech for good. It was inspired by a senior colleague of mine who was the deputy CTO in the Obama White House, Beth Novick. She had written a book about how tech was transforming life, social and commercial, but big public problems and public sector areas weren't being attacked or tackled. And that's what inspired me, uh, Beth and, and her book, to leave and, and get into, into building tech for good. So I'm, I'm still interested in that, you know, with safety and sustainability and and I think that, um, you know, I track the number of sensors we have deployed every day. You know, that's something that I track every morning. Um, there's 90 million pieces of refrigeration out there in the business world. Uh, we're in, you know, 10,000 of them. So we're barely scratching the surface, you know, of this opportunity. And this is just one of the many parts of the climate problem. So, yeah, I guess that desire to kind of move faster and do more is is the biggest challenge. Well, you mentioned some of the challenges and the switch from government to entrepreneurship what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself on your journey? Uh, it is hard to um, it is hard to appreciate uh, how uh, how volatile it can be to be you know uh, trying to build or, or create things from from the ground up. I didn't appreciate that um, earlier in my career. I had worked. I had the privilege of working in highly resourced organizations, really well resourced. <laughs> I went to Harvard twice and Cambridge. My first job was at the world's second largest hedge fund, D.E. Shaw, where I worked for the gentleman who ran the firm. Um, I got paid very well. I had tons of resources. Um, I went to work in the in the White House, uh, where you know, again, tons of resources, the best of the best. Just you know, everyone takes your calls when you you know when you work at D.E. Shaw or the White House. Then I started yes, a startup, <laughs> you know, with no capital. We bootstrapped the business in the beginning. Um, this was the precursor to Therma, uh, the product called Co-Inspect, also focused on improving safety in the farm to fork, but uh, with a mobile app instead of sensors. And suddenly, no one would take my calls, and no one wanted to, you know, you know, do do do, you know, no one had the time, let's say, to put it half jokingly. So it was really lonely and 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 humbling. I think extremely humbling to realize how, um, you know, how uh, much effort is required to kind of build things from the ground up. And and that humility is something that was new to me. I think I'd been a little bit uh, you know, self-assured or maybe too self-assured when I started working as an entrepreneur that, oh, yeah, things will just come together. Uh, and one of my early investors, you know, made the, you know, reminded me about the, uh, the 10-year overnight success, <laughs> which now, you know, many years into being an entrepreneur, I can appreciate. So, yeah, I think uh, I learned to believe in myself in a different way. I'd always believed I could do things uh, in terms of, you know, I was top of my class in high school and college and law school. And, you know, I believed I could be a good student uh, and get prestigious jobs, but believing that I could stay in it, even when we almost ran out of money three times, um, you know, we, we so many days where, you know, deals fell through or rounds fell through or people quit. 
um, pandemics hit, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, the, the ability to kind of stick it through is something I learned about myself, you know, what grit means, what resilience means. I'm still learning, still learning, but that, that's, that's um, probably the most important thing for me personally. Um, well, speaking of believing in yourself, let's cast a vision into the future. Let's say it's 10 years from now, Fast Company, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, where to write a headline and perhaps even a short paragraph regarding Therma. What would you like it to read? Ah, that I, 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 I'm enjoying the visioning, the internal visioning around that. Um, the, you know, the, so many things that would be nice to hear uh, or, or read. I think most importantly, Therma had a reduction, a meaningful, measurable reduction on emissions coming off of cooling and helped advance human health while protecting the planet's health at scale. I think that would be powerful and would help me feel uh, like the work mattered and we had some impact. Well, I love that vision. And last question, and this could be professional or personal. If you could give some advice, words of wisdom, recommendations to the audience, what would it be? Do work that you love. Find, find work or find uh, concepts or people or, or, or issues that matter to you and, and, and work on those. Life is too short. Uh, and the opportunity cost is too high to to not do that. And, um, you know, I think that's one reason why I still enjoy the work many years into early mornings and late nights and long weekends. I, I feel the work is worthwhile, at least for my values and what I care about. So that gives it a sense of meaning, even if I'm not hanging out with my one-year-old or even if I'm missing some time with my family. Um, because of the intensity of the work, I think uh, for all of us, you know, who care, just, I would encourage you to just follow work, find work that you love and follow your own internal uh, commitments and values to, to do things with your time that matter to you. Manik, I love the idea of do work that you love. I wish you all the best with Therma and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much. A pleasure, Raj. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.